Lord, of love for one another and for those who do not know you. Lord, come and bring your gifts today. We pray for those who will be confirmed, Lord, that you will ready their heart by the preaching of the word and by the lifting up of the name of Jesus to receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit and a refreshing of their mission for this world. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. You can open your Bibles. If you didn't bring your Bible, you can open your bulletin. But it sure is fun to bring your Bible to church. That's not just the Baptists who do that. We'll be in John 3. Yeah, it was just beautifully read for us. I saw a beautiful film. I think it's been almost 20 years now. It was one of those movies that stays with you. Perhaps you all have seen it. It's a parable, really. It's called Life is Beautiful. And in this great story that this film tells, it's about a Jewish father and his son uh, who are captured and put in a Nazi concentration camp. And the father realizes to get his son through this diabolical experience, he's going to spin a story. He's going to create a narrative. And he tells his son, hey, this is actually a camp. And this camp is actually just a really complicated, really exciting game. Here's how it's going to work. I'm going to give you tasks that you need to do, which he would give him to defend his life. I'm going to give you tasks you need to do. And every time you do it, especially immediately, you will gain a point. And once you've gained a thousand points, see that tank over there, he says, in a moment of irony, you'll win that as a prize. So the son follows through on everything the father does. The son believes every morning he wakes up that he's part of this marvelous game. And at the very end of the movie, without spoiling it, the son says, that narrative, that was the gift that my father gave me. Narrative has immense power. Narratives come in lots of shapes and lots of sizes. You've got big, what are called meta-narratives that try to tell the story of epic realities. Right now in our country, there is a very significant national conversation happening about what is the narrative of our country? Who gets to tell the narrative of America? You have all kinds of questions around which media narrative do you subscribe to? What's on your feed? Who are you listening to? Who are you reading? And there's all kinds of division right now around media narratives. There's a circumspect narrative, one that's more focused, like the narrative you find between two uh, covers, a novel, for example. But I would argue that the most powerful narrative that exists amidst many powerful narratives is the narrative you tell yourself about yourself that we all carry in our minds and in our hearts, formed by lots of factors, a narrative about our own lives. What story, when you wake up in the morning, what do you think? When your mind is distracted for a few moments, where does it go? When you think about your background, you think about where you were raised, you think about your future, what story do you tell yourself about yourself? Because we all live a narrative to make sense of our lives. And the question I want to ask you this morning is, what is your narrative? What fuels, what animates your narrative? I'm preaching this sermon around our diocese from John chapter 3. This isn't the uh, 
appointed lesson for the day. The church gives appointed lessons, and for the most part, we try to follow those appointed lessons. But I'm preaching this around the diocese because I believe that we are in a season in our country where there is a massive battle of narratives. And for us as Christians, we're not surprised by that because we're used to living in the battle of the narrative. We're living in the battle that there's a narrative that the world gives that is constantly embattled with the narrative of the Scriptures. We shouldn't be disoriented by the battle of narratives happening in our country. We're ready for this. And we actually have a narrative that animates everything else. And what we find in John chapter 3 is also a battle of the narratives. So turn there in your bulletin. We're going to work this through in this text. But you have a battle happening. You have the disciples. Disciple means pupil, student of John. So John the Baptist had a rabbinical school. He had a following. He was seen as a rabbi. And his followers have a certain narrative about their rabbi, their leader, John. But their narrative is in conflict with John's own narrative. And we watch these tensions between them. This is a story with a lot of drama. So don't, don't let the scriptures feel, be one-dimensional to you this morning. There's a lot of drama happening. There's a lot of tension. There's a, there's a conflict here, which always, of course, is part of a great story. John's followers and their view of reality, their view of what's happening, or John's view. And this is also tension-filled because they're John's followers. They're his disciples. Why are they not responding to their teacher with submission as any Jewish disciple would have been taught to do? What's happening here? What's going on here? So that's our backdrop for this in John chapter 3. And what I want to just bring to you this morning is I want to call you to know your narrative. I'd like you first to do, as we're looking at the Bible together, I want you to just be doing some personal work. And you can do this work, of course, afterwards as well. What is my narrative? What, what theme animates my life or themes animate my life? It's important to know your narrative. But it's all the more important to know his narrative. Ultimately, the story that that father told in Life is Beautiful that narrative wasn't true. It was a beautiful narrative. It was an incredible imaginative idea for a dad to do. But it wasn't true. How much more powerful is a beautiful narrative given to us by an incredibly loving, creative father that is absolutely true? Amen? Amen. So we know our narrative. We know his narrative is the second part of what we want to look at. All right. So a discussion arises between some of John's disciples, rabbinical school, Okay, they're in school together, they're under John, and a Jew of a purification, I would love to know more of what was happening in that, by the way, like, what was the Jew, what was the Jew saying, hey, Rabbi Jesus has a different view of purification, and it's actually more in line that with, with Torah than, than Rabbi John, we don't know exactly what's happening, but we do know that that conversation created anxiety. You ever had a conversation that creates anxiety? If you're here, I assume you're breathing. And if you're breathing, I assume that you had a conversation that, that, that creates anxiety. Like in the last week, in the last day, right? So there's anxiety here. They're like, oh, okay, our rabbi, this Jew talking about purification. So they come to the rabbi and they say to him, rabbi, teacher, he who was with you across the Jordan, Yeshua, Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing. And don't miss this. It's there. And all are going to him. Okay. What's the narrative here? It's a narrative of competition. It's a win-lose narrative. 
Now, these are folks that have probably given up a lot to follow John. To follow John was very risky. He was an anti-establishment figure. He's calling Pharisees, who are very respected religious leaders. They're like our priests and our bishops. He's following them. Um, he's confronting them, and they're following John in that. They've given up a lot to follow John, and now they're, and, and, but they're thinking, look, we're on the right side of righteousness. We're on the right side of history. What a relief. And then all of a sudden, John's losing market share. Wait, 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 wait. I mean, John, others are going to John. What's happening here? All are going to him. Many of us have. Particularly, you don't have to be younger to have this. Those of us who are older can have this. But if you're younger, it is, it is very likely you are dealing with some kind of competition narrative. It's some kind of win or lose narrative. That in your life, in your work life, in your spiritual life, even in your community life, possibly here, you're thinking, am I winning or am I losing right now? Am I on the winning side or the losing side? Am I winning in my life or losing in my life? Am I winning financially or losing financially? It's win or lose. It's either or. And a lot of American culture is driven by this. And I would argue that isn't all bad unless it becomes the main narrative of your life. And in a win or lose life, you live an envy life. You live a jealousy life. You can begin to be eaten from the inside out by envy and jealousy of those who you view are doing much better. All are going to him. That kind of phrase can drive us in so many ways. It may be that right now you feel like you're on the winning side of the narrative. So you're like, yeah, it's a, it's a win-lose narrative, but I'm doing okay. I'm actually doing well in this narrative. You may be on the lose side. Your health is not what it once was. You are aging. You're not as sharp as you were. You can't keep up with those who are younger. Your interpersonal life, you're losing. You thought for sure by now you'd be married. You're not married. You thought for sure by now you'd have a healthy marriage. You don't have a healthy marriage. You're losing. It's a win or lose life. Okay, alongside this main narrative that's happening here with John's disciples, there's another subcurrent narrative. It's a really important narrative to also understand. And it's a narrative that is happening right now throughout our country and it's happening throughout our churches in our country after 10 months of this incredibly challenging pandemic that has wreaked havoc that we won't fully understand for years to come, which is this. It's a narrative that you really can't trust authority. Now, some authority you can't trust. So part of discernment in life is figuring out which authorities you can trust. But John has shown himself to be a trustworthy authority figure. He's utterly under Torah. He's utterly committed to teaching the prophets. Everything he does, he takes back to the scriptures. Jesus has affirmed his ministry. So this is a trusted spiritual leader. But one of the narratives here is you can't trust your spiritual leader. It isn't wrong to challenge a spiritual leader. That's part of accountability, particularly in our Anglican tradition. We have place for that. This has gone beyond a challenge. Others are going to him. Maybe, John, you're not one to be followed. Should we really trust you? Which is why John says to them, look in verse 28, 
you yourselves, that's a very emphatic statement, by the way, it's a double you, if you will, not a double you, a double you. You yourselves, you heard me say this. I prepared you for Jesus. Why are you living in a win or lose competitive framework? Why are you now questioning my spiritual authority when what I've done is pointed you to Jesus from the very beginning? I'm delighted all are going to him. It's John's argument. Jesus is the narrative, he's saying. Not win or lose. Not my rabbinical school versus his. Other narratives that happen in the scriptures. Other narratives that may be happening in our own lives. There's a very strong outsider narrative that many of us can take on. I'm also on the outside. I'm actually never included in the key conversation. I'm never in the room where it happens. I'm an outsider. The Samaritan woman had a very... Now she was an outsider, the Samaritan woman, in John chapter 4. She comes from what we view as a mixed-race background. She's a woman in a culture where it's very difficult to be a woman, and she's a woman who's made a lot of bad decisions, particularly in her interpersonal romantic life, to be kind of cloaked with children here. Okay. So she actually does have an outsider reality, but she's taking it on as her narrative. And note, if you will, that the narratives that we hold aren't completely detached from reality. The narratives we hold are often fed by real things that have happened in our lives. She really does have an outside reality. But she meets Jesus and tries her outsider narrative on Jesus. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how, you know, how would you even speak to me? I don't belong. I don't have any place. And Jesus doesn't buy it. He says to her, look, woman, I, I'm here talking to you. I have living water to give to you. So we see a class of the narratives. I'm an outsider. I'm not worthy. I don't have any place. Jesus said, you have, totally have a place. I recognize that you're a Samaritan. I'm aware of that. But you have an absolute place in the kingdom of God. You have an absolute place with me. I who speak to you am he, she says. Oh, the Messiah will come today. I am here with you. Jesus says to our outsider narrative, how outsider can you be when I live inside of you? How outsider can you be when I died for you? How outsider can you be when I am integrating you into the vine that is the life? But many of us have an outsider narrative. There's a narrative of the, of the life of, of misfortune. This is incredibly well depicted in C.S. Lewis's Anglican thinker and writer, Chronicles of Narnia writer, The Horse and His Boy, where there's a figure, Shasta, who has had a very, very hard life. It's real. He's not making it up. He's had an incredibly terrible life. He's been orphaned. He's been abused. But he says at this point when he meets Aslan, this figure of Christ, I am the most unfortunate boy, he says. And Aslan, who's known as misfortune, doesn't deny that. But he says, tell me your misfortunes. And Shasta lists his misfortunes. This happened to me. This happened to me. This happened to me. This happened to me. I am the most unfortunate boy. We, we, we say it ourselves, I'm the most unfortunate woman. I'm the most unfortunate dad. I'm the most unfortunate mom. I'm the most unfortunate whatever. And Aslan says, I was there at that misfortune. And I was there at that misfortune. And I've been pursuing you in this misfortune. You are not the most unfortunate boy. I am right here with you. But that narrative can take our lives over. Anytime that God tries to bring a grace or tries to bring a gift or tries to bring a life, we actually shut it out because our narrative is one of misfortune. This isn't denying that there has been deep misfortune. There has been for many of us. But that's not the narrative of a follower of Jesus ultimately. I grew up with somebody who was always saying, I'm just not smart enough. Always. Oh, I would do this, but I'm just not smart enough. Or I was just given this vocational opportunity. I don't know why they gave me this opportunity. I'm just not smart enough. Many of us have a I'm not enough narrative. 
And it might be that you're not as smart as somebody else. That's probably very likely, right? Yeah, I hang around with a lot of smart people. Um, I really do, and it's really interesting. But I'm often going, well, I'm not the smartest guy in this room, a girl, you know, person in this room. I'm very aware of that often. I've gotten used to it. I'm okay with it. Um, I, don't, I don't mind not being super smart. I just love Jesus a ton. That's what I want to mark me. I'm thankful for folks who've been given amazing intelligence. I'm very thankful for them. But that doesn't really matter that much. Does that matter too much to you? That you are really smart or you're not that smart? Depending on what, how you think about it. A lot of narratives. The narrative I've had to really work through in my own life, and I want to just be honest with you and transparent, because I want you to be transparent with yourself and with others that you can trust. I have dealt with a rejection narrative my whole life. And it's rooted in some very real things. I, I'm not making it up. <laughs> but I've had to work through over and over again that my ultimate narrative is not one of rejection. And that when I'm in a relationship with other people, that it won't ultimately end in rejection. I've gotten a lot of freedom from that as Jesus is coming in and accepted me. But it's been a real battle. To get free from our narrative, we can't just work our way out of it. We can't just name it. It's important to name whatever narrative animates your life, but you've got to know his narrative. What John does is not just say, I told you what was true. I told you what was going on. He now gives them a vision of Jesus. He said, you heard me bear witness. I am not the Messiah. I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. What he's saying here is, let me tell you about the bridegroom, which is one of the ways that we understand the Messiah, which is one of the ways that we understand Jesus. Let me tell you about the narrative of Jesus, about the narrative of who God is. There's at least two things John highlights in the narrative of who God is. It's a narrative of receiving. This is not a narrative of rejection. This is not a narrative of I'm not enough. This is not a narrative of I'm an outsider. This is the narrative of receiving. That in the narrative of the kingdom of God, in the narrative where Jesus is king, it's a narrative where we receive our lives from him. John says this kind of cryptic verse that is extremely important. And by the way, it's really fun to see John preaching. I can't wait when I get to be with the Lord to read all of John's preaching. By the way, we just get a little fragment here. All right? He was a preacher. He says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. It's like, well, that's a lot of double negatives in there and confusing. All right, we'll work on it. All right, so heaven is God. So a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given them from God. What's this saying? is that our whole lives are lives of receiving. That we live our lives, that doesn't mean that our lives are passivity. I didn't say that. So if you just heard, oh, passivity, you didn't hear me what I said. I said our lives are lives of receiving. So we are receiving the gift of God. This is not like a bundle dropped from heaven. Oh, punk, hmm, open this up, you know, like a Coke bottle falling out of the heavens, whatever it might be, it's a movie illusion. No, 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 that's not how this works. This is more like when God gives you a gift, just imagine it this way. Use this exercise. It's Jesus coming to you, you, coming to you, your name, your person. And he brings a beautifully carved wooden box. And he opens that box up. And in that box might be one coin. It might be 40 coins. doesn't matter. And you maybe look around going, how many coins does somebody else have in their box? Don't look at that, he says. Just look at your coin. Pick it up, he says. Just pick up that coin. And on one side is the face of Jesus. It's his image. But you flip it over, and maybe there's some symbol, something that he's giving you, Stuart, you, Isaac, 
He's giving you something. These coins are individualized. On one hand, his face. On the other hand, a symbol, something that he's giving you. And whether it's one coin or 40 coins, it's all you need for the rest of your life. You've got everything you need in that coin or coins. They're gifts he's giving you. Well, the first gift has the face of Jesus, the first side of the coin, which means that the key thing John is saying here is he's saying he gives you the gift of salvation. You're saved. You're rescued from your sin nature, from demonic powers. You're rescued from the world itself that is moving toward destruction and moving toward chaos and moving toward darkness. The world has always been doing that, by the way. This is nothing new that's happening for us in our country. It's happening in other countries around the world forever. And now it's happening with us. But there's nothing new for Christians. This is the cosmos. This is the world. This is how it works. There's one person to blame. There's actors involved in it. But be assured, this is animated by the enemy, and this is moving this way. And we get rescued from it. The sake of going back into it with the light of Jesus. But that's, that, that's the side of the coin with Jesus' face. First of all, we receive our salvation. But if we receive our salvation, which is personal, it's even more personalized because what John, I believe, is saying here, he's also saying you receive a calling. We're going to lay hands on folks for confirmation. What's that all about? Well, it's very clear. The church has been very clear about confirmation. You're receiving your calling in Jesus. You're being empowered by the Holy Spirit for what he's given you to do. There's a specific symbol. You need to tell me what that symbol is. I can't tell you what it is. But it has to do with your narrative. It has to do with your calling and your story. It has to do with redeeming your narrative from the I'm not something enough. I'm always on the outside enough. No, there's a symbol there. What does it have to do? Does it have to do with teaching? Does it have to do with entrepreneurship? Does it have to do with being an excellent carpenter? Does it have to do with the trades? Does it have to do with administration? Does it have to do with prophecy? What does it have to do with? I don't know. But you need to know. You don't need to know what your narrative is that animates you. You need to know what Jesus' narrative for you is. It's salvation, but it's also a calling. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Receive your life work from Jesus. Augustine, the church father, said, in light of this verse, I received something from heaven, salvation, in order to be something, a calling. You may argue, I, th- I think you're over-personalizing this, Stuart. I, I think the text is about salvation. Yes, and. The immediate context is John's life work. Rabbi, your life work is diminishing, they're saying to him. They're all going to him. So he's saying this in the context of a life work. Jesus says to Pilate, you would have nothing, speaking to him as his governorship, his call to public office, which Christians are, are called to. Pilate wasn't a Christian, but he's saying to him, you'd have nothing unless it were given to you, remember, from heaven. Same phrase. Same phrase. Intentionally so. Jesus was listening to John's preaching. What have you been given? And to whom have you been sent? What have you been given? From heaven, from God. And to whom have you been sent? Accept the gifts that are given you. And one of the first ways to start by accepting the gifts given you are accept the gifts that have not been given to you. You tracking with me? <laughs> this is where it gets interesting. Accept the gifts that have been given to you. One of the ways to know what the gifts are that to given to you well, except the ones that have been given. It's important in life maturity to go, I'm not very good at that, and I probably will never be good at that. That's not despair. That's just real. 
And so don't be afraid of what you're not good at. It'll help you get clear about what you're good at and what you're called to. No matter being good at it, it's what you're called to. Younger adults, young men and women that are listening to this, trust your elders to help you get there. One of the jobs of a spiritual mom and dad, spiritual auntie and uncle, is to help you know what your gifts are. Now, if you can't trust spiritual authority, you won't be able to trust them to help you get there. These followers of John who are questioning his authority, they're not going to get much help finding out what God's called them to do. It's very, very important. Very important. We submit ourselves to godly, proven, track record authority. And I can promise you you have that in this church. Boy, I can promise you that. Oh, my. What you have in Father Michael and Liz. I'm with a lot of leaders. I've been with them for a lot of years. It's what I do is spend time with leaders. You have exemplary spiritual father and mother here. You can trust them. And if you're younger, getting with them or other leaders in this church and learning out, learning what have I been given to do? I want to understand that. I need help. If, we're, if you're in the older adult category, well, I'd say to us, it's never too late. Our purpose does not diminish. I plan on getting better and better at loving Jesus, better and better receiving what he's given me, and better and better and saying I'm not very good at this. One of my heroes in our diocese is Ann Kessler. You guys don't know Ann? She's not on our website. She's never preached. But she runs operations at our cathedral church. And she knows what she's called to do. She's a brilliant administrator. Very, very detail-oriented. Sometimes that irritates folks who aren't detail-oriented, like me. But she's amazing. She, to me, is an example of somebody who's received what's been given her from heaven, Ann Kessler. So what I would say to you today, you don't know Ann, is be like Ann. Look at that side of the coin, like she has. What's God given me to do? This narrative of receiving leads into a narrative of decreasing. He must increase, but I must decrease. If you come from a conservative Christian background, which I don't assume all of you do, but if you do, I'd like to take verse 30 and get it off the back of the youth group t-shirt, right? Which is, that's what you often see, or the Christian, Christian high school jersey, which is, it's fine that it's there. I think it's great. It's a great verse for that. But I'd like to get it off the back. I'd like to get it into our hearts. That's what I would like to do. Because decreasing is taught in the greater narrative of a wedding. What's going on there? What's going on there? It's really rich Bible stuff. In short, it's not just Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 who says Christ is a groom and the Holy Church is his bride. This actually has deep roots in Hebrew scriptures. Because John hasn't heard Jesus teach that yet. So John knows his Bible. He knows in Hosea chapter 2 that Israel is the bride of the Lord. And then in Ephesians 5, the church also receives this gift of being a bride. What John is saying is it's all about a wedding. If you want to have a narrative that's a great arcing narrative, it's the narrative of the wedding. The narrative of the wedding starts with the Bible, with Adam and Eve, and it finishes with the wedding feast of the Lamb. The narrative of a wedding of God loving humanity in and through Jesus and by His church is the narrative that leads everything. He's the God who loves like a husband loves, a true husband loves. He's God who loves like a bridegroom loves. And we are the assistants in that wedding. We're the ones running around like the best man or the maid of honor, making sure that everything happens so that the bride and the bridegroom are celebrated. And everyone's looking at them. Everyone's looking at Jesus and his church. Everyone's looking at the work that he's doing. And we're running around just so glad to even be a part of the wedding and to be invited and making sure that everything is sorted out. Because Jesus, who is increasing, actually is decreasing. What does that mean? He must increase but I must decrease, John says. But what we find out is that Jesus says, I who increase must also decrease. 
I will decrease in my infancy and come truly as a baby, completely. I will decrease in my life lived as a human being. I will not sin, but I will live with human limitations. That's the gift of the incarnation. I will decrease on the cross when I stretch out my arms upon the cross and give my life for the life of the world. I will become a victim. I will be tried like a criminal. I will decrease to the very lowest place of execution. That three days later, I may increase in my resurrection. And if you will decrease with me, if you will receive my salvation, if you will decrease, then you will know my increase as well. Hallelujah. For those of us who are buried with Christ in our baptism are raised with him in his resurrection. And when we lay hands in confirmation, we're confirming the power of your decrease. We're confirming the power that in Jesus who has died on the cross, he has vanquished the enemy. He has overcome demonic power. He's given us freedom to live, not shackled to our sin nature. Amen? Amen. That's why this is the most important thing happening today. Because we proclaim the truth of Jesus. Oh, he's decreased. Oh, he's increased. That's the narrative. That's the narrative. We eschew worldly power. We eschew positioning. We eschew the life of competition, wrongly understood. We live lives of receiving. We live lives of decreasing. We live lives of assisting the bridegroom and getting everything ready. Hallelujah. Oh, Jesus, we just sent your presence today. Lord, we came here needing you. We came here needing each other. Lord, we pray for those that are, that are, that are watching this as well, Lord, that you will meet them in their living room or in their, in, in their apartment, wherever they are. Lord, we've needed you today. We need your power. Lord, we, we, we got confused this week, and we thought that, that the narrative was about competition. We thought the narrative was about power. We thought the narrative was about one-upping somebody. We thought the narrative was about us not ever being included. We, we got confused in our narrative, Lord, but, but now you're setting us straight. Now you're putting us in, 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 into the face of the cross. Now you're giving us Jesus. Now you're inviting us to the wedding feast yet again. So come Holy Spirit and lift off these false narratives. Lift off these ways that have animated our lives. And come Holy Spirit and center the cross of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of God in Jesus. Oh, he must increase, but we must decrease. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.